You are listening to The Adventures of Sariputta and Mogolana. I'm your host, Morris Sullivan. Today, I'm going to talk about a relatively new Buddhist tradition, one that first put down roots in the late 19th century and has grown and spread since then. But first, I'll tell you about Sariputta's role in bringing about a more established Buddhist tradition. Even though he was an advanced senior monk, Sariputta was known for putting the needs of others first. For instance, when traveling with the Buddha, he wouldn't leave right away. Instead, he'd send young novices ahead with his robes and bowl, and he'd stay behind to tend to those monks who might need help on the road. He'd only follow after making sure that any elderly or sick monks had whatever they needed for the journey. But one time he left quite late because of this, and by the time he arrived at the monastery where the Buddha and other monks had stopped, there were no rooms left for him to sleep in. So he fashioned a tent from robes and sat beneath them for the night. The Buddha was unhappy to learn that his key disciple had spent the night sleeping on the ground under what amounted to a thin lean-to. He called the monks together, and he told them this story about the importance of respecting those who have gone before you. Well, once upon a time, three friends, an elephant, a monkey, and a partridge, lived under the branches of a massive banyan tree. Over time, they had grown to take one another for granted, were treating each other with less respect than they deserved, and one day they all agreed that they weren't behaving very well, and so they decided to determine which one of them was the most senior, and they would honor him. So that means that they had to figure out which one had been at the banyan tree the longest. The partridge and the monkey came up with an idea. They asked the elephant, Hey, how big was the banyan tree when you first saw it? The elephant said, I remember when I was a baby, I could step across this tree with no problem. It was really no more than a bush. And he asked the monkey the same question. The monkey said, Well, when I was young, I could sit on the ground and easily reach the highest, most tender shoots. So I've known this tree since it was very, very small. They asked the partridge the same question. My friends, he said, about two miles over that way, there's another banyan tree. I used to eat its fruit all the time, and one day after eating the fruit, I flew over this direction and I dropped its seeds on the ground. That's how this tree came to be here. So I guess I've known this tree since before it was born. I've been here the longest. The monkey and the elephant said, well, then you will receive our homage and our veneration. We will heed your counsel with due attention. From then on, the partridge modeled behavior fitting of a senior member of their little community. He followed the five precepts and lived virtuously. The monkey and elephant listened to his advice and followed his example. Living in this orderly way, treating one another with respect, they were all assured of rebirth in the higher realms. After telling this story, the Buddha laid down rules for seniority among monks, making sure that those who have practiced long and realized the teachings are venerated by the community. These rules still provide a sense of order in the monastic community. Monks who have been ordained longer are senior to others regardless of age. Even if you're 80 years old, if you just ordained, you're a junior to those who have been a monk longer than you have. Around Visak Day, which commemorates the beginnings of Buddhism, I talked at White Sands Buddhist Center about the history and significance of another, newer tradition. 
Thank you so much. So uh, it's good to see so many of you here. This is nice. I was going to talk about something completely different. Uh, I had this idea about what I was going to do. And then I remembered that I had seen those Buddhist flags out there last week and, um, and how moved I was by seeing so many of them. We've, we've usually had some out there on Buddha's birthday, but I think it's the first time we've had this many. And um, so I thought, well, I should talk for a couple minutes about what they are and what they signify. And so um, I had to look a couple things up because I'm really not a very good history student. I don't remember dates very well. I actually majored in social sciences in college the first time around. History's part of that. Um, but um, I wasn't very good at it, <laughs> at that part of it. Uh, so I started looking some things up, and I said, well, this is interesting. I should talk about this, too. And then, so the next thing I knew, I'd gone down this rabbit hole. And, and I thought, but you know what? It's good stuff. The flags and their existence here is kind of a nice reminder that our spiritual practice, our religion, for lack of a better term, arises as a result of our culture. And our culture influences our religion, but also is influenced by our religion. Somebody said something when introductions were going around about not being spiritual or not having spiritual practice or something. And the reality is we all live spiritual lives. Just some of us don't do it very deliberately yet right? Because we, we're in these content, this cultural context in which spirituality is a, is a reality. And so uh, religions like Buddhism exist in that and, and evolve and change the cultures they're in. And the flags are a nice representation of that, and I'll explain why in a minute. It, and it kind of reminded me of a conversation I had with one of the guys in the uh, Buddhist group at the correctional institution where I go. He asked me last week, he said, is, is, I can't remember exactly how he put it, but basically he asked, is Buddhism a living religion or is it a museum piece? I mean, that's not the way you put it, but you know, if religions are to affect us and affect our lives, they need to evolve and they, you know, they need to happen in our life and our lives evolve. And so um, I said, yes, Buddhism continues to grow and change because it's a, it's a living thing, it's an organic thing. So I'm gonna talk a little bit about the flag and what it means and its background. Our ability to practice today is thanks to a line of teachers that goes back many, many years. And these teachers and communities like this one embodied the teachings and realized the fruits for the benefit of all beings, and that includes us. And so symbols like that flag are reminders of that. They connect us to the lineage to the, of teachers and to people who have practiced before us uh, so that this is available to us. So we go back in time. So until the middle of the last century, Sri Lanka uh, was ruled by the British, not, not since the beginning of time, but for 150 years, something like that. So generally speaking, Sri Lanka, which is in th Southeast Asia, is a Theravada Buddhist country, as are most Southeast uh, Asian countries. So <clears throat> the big split 
between the different schools of Buddhism actually started out as this sort of rift between Northern Buddhism and Southern Buddhism, and I'm not going to go into all the reasons for that or anything. It's kind of irrelevant. But Vietnamese Buddhism is Mahayana, which is comes out of the northern schools of Buddhism, largely because of Chinese influence. Um, but because of its location, it's in Southeast Asia, you find that Vietnamese Buddhism also has a lot of Theravada influence, which is southern Buddhism. Um, and the abbot, Venerable Kai Tien, explained all of this to me when I first started coming here, I was trying to figure out what the heck was going on because I saw these elements from different schools of Buddhism. He explained this to me. So uh, in 1884, the Buddhist leadership in Sri Lanka convinced the British governors that to declare Visak Day, which is Buddha's birthday, the ways we refer to it here, a public holiday. And so the governors agreed and the Buddhists established a committee known as the Colombo Committee. Colombo is the capital of Sri Lanka. And that committee consisted of a couple of high-ranking monks and some Sri Lankan laypersons and a handful of Westerners. And they, working together, came up with the design of the flag very much like the one that's out there today. So also there was a fellow named Colonel Henry Steele Olcott, who was involved in this process somehow. There's a little mythology around what his involvement was. It's a little vague, but he has at times been credited with designing the flag, but probably, according to the historical record, he was more just kind of in a position of giving advice and input. Anyway, whatever the case, he was an interesting character, and he's kind of important to this story because he was very influential on creating a relationship between Buddhism and the West, which is why he figures significantly in this story. So Olcott was an actual colonel. He served in the U.S. Army during the Civil War, uh, which for those of you who, who didn't grow up going to history of American history classes was in the 1860s, ended in 1865. But he was also very influential in the early days of what today we'd probably refer to as New Age spirituality. So there was a philosophical movement that started about 200 years ago that involved people like Henry David Thoreau and Ralph Waldo Emerson, and I'm not gonna go into detail on that, but it was heavily influenced by Eastern religions, particularly the religions of India. And so this movement was growing and evolving, and in the 1850s or thereabouts, the spiritualist movement started to take shape. So this was a religious movement, more or less, based on the idea that you could communicate with spirits in the afterlife. And so they had seances and things like that. Spiritualism still exists. How many of you have ever been to Casadega? Yeah, so Casadega is this little town next to the land where I live, and, and it was founded in 1875 by spiritualists as a spiritualist community. And so you, if you want to get your palm read or whatever, you can go there and you can do that. And there's a spiritualist church there. Very historic place. Uh, I know a lot about that because I used to be a, a features writer for the Daytona Beach News Journal. And for whatever reason, Casadega ended up being kind of on my beat. So I wrote a lot about the history there. Anyway. So Olcott got interested in spiritualism and then Indian religion somehow or another, and he met this woman named Helena Blavatsky, 
And together, Colonel Olcott and Madame Blavatsky and several other people founded the Theosophical Society, which still exists today. It was founded with the intention of furthering the exploration of the wisdom of the religions of the world. And they were trying to take a kind of scientific and Western philosophical approach to that and figure out what's useful from the world's religions. And so they started in New York City, but pretty soon um, Olcott and Blavatsky went to India and they started commissioning translations of holy texts from Hinduism and Buddhism and Zoroastrianism and things like that. So some of the early English translations of, of Buddhist sutras, scriptures, came because of these people doing this stuff. So in the process of this, Olcott and Blavatsky became really, really committed to Buddhism. It really resonated with them, and so they ended up in Sri Lanka and became the first Westerners to go for refuge, or at least the first ones that history has recorded uh, going for refuge, which they did in 1880. So it's, it was kind of interesting how Olcott and the Sri Lankans affected each other and how their relationship changed Buddhism, not only in the West, because, you know, because, largely because of Olcott that it's available, to, became available in the West, but also they kind of changed the way it was practiced in that part of Asia. So at the time, scriptures from India and elsewhere in the East were translated with a very sort of Christian perspective. So there wasn't a lot of effort put into accuracy or really being able to understand what was being said. And so Olcott wanted more accurate translations. And so in the process of doing this, he got to know the leadership of Buddhism in Sri Lanka. So Pali literature, I hope I'm not confusing you too much. I know that I'm going all over the place here, but I promise you I'm gonna to get to a point. Uh, the earliest Buddhist teachings were recorded in Pali, which is an ancient Indian dialect. And Pali was first written down in Sri Lanka. There was no written Pali until Sri Lankans figured out how to do that. And so that really started to happen. The writing down of these things started to happen around the beginning of the Common Era. Everything BCE was pretty much still being transmitted orally. But Sri Lankans came up with a way to write in Pali. And so that's where this stuff was written down around the first century, the Common Era. And then Buddhism in Sri Lanka had kind of declined. And so Olcott was getting to know these Taras, these advanced monks who were in leadership positions because of this translation project. And he saw that Buddhism in Sri Lanka had kind of fallen into this kind of folk religion mishmash of superstition and misunderstanding and stuff. So he's, he said, hey, you know, you guys have this really good religion that you're just not practicing. And why don't you go take it back to the basics, what the Buddha actually taught, and return to this more grounded Buddhist practice? And these Taras, these advanced Sri Lankan monks, said, yes, you're right. We, we knew this, and we agree with you. And so, so imagine this. Here's this American Civil War colonel with a big white Santa Claus beard telling these shaved-headed Theravada monks that they should take their practice more seriously. And imagine them agreeing, right? And so this led to a revival of Buddhism in Sri Lanka. 
that spread beyond that. And Olcott is still revered today for this, partly because of that and partly because he was a big supporter of their struggle for independence from British rule. And he wrote something called a Buddhist Catechism, which became an enduring contribution to the revival of Buddhism in Sri Lanka and is still in use there today. And it outlines what Olcott saw to be the basic doctrines of Buddhism, including the life of the Buddha and what the Dharma said and the role of the Sangha and that sort of thing. And I've read, I haven't read it all, but I've read bits and pieces and, you know, things like he, he talks about uh, why ignorance causes suffering and he says, because it makes us prize what is not worth prizing and grieve for that which we should not grieve for and consider real what is not real but only illusory and thus pass our lives in the pursuit of worthless objects, neglecting what's really valuable which is not a bad way of explaining the relationship of ignorance and suffering from a Buddhist perspective. So this big Buddhist revival is going on because of Olcott and Visak Full Moon Day is coming up and so it's gonna be celebrated for the first time as a public holiday on May 28th, 1885. And the Colombo Committee comes up with this flag for the event and it was formally raised that day by a Sri Lankan monk named Gunananda, Tara Gunananda. He's also an interesting guy. He had gotten to know a Catholic priest when he was young and had actually considered becoming a priest. But then he overheard some, some Christians disparaging Buddhism and misunderstanding it, and you know how that kind of stuff can go. And so he started debating Christian leaders comparing the teachings of Buddhism and Christianity. And he wrote a book that, in English uh, to kind of clarify things, and that got Olcott's attention. Anyway, so the committee gets together and designs this flag, and they wanted to create something that would represent the essence of Buddhism from a truly universal perspective. They wanted to include Buddhists from all over the world with this symbol of Buddhism. That They wanted to take it from Sri Lanka and make this something that would represent Buddhism everywhere. And it, it does, it's, uh, it, it's pretty pervasive. There's some little variations from country to country. Remember I said thing, spirituality evolves as it changes cultures and so you'll th see things like the Japanese version, the blue is green instead, things like that. But, but um, all over the world it's been accepted and at the 1950 meeting of the World Fellowship of Buddhists, it was formally adopted as the international Buddhist flag. So the design of the flag includes six stripes, five colors. So blue, yellow, red, white, orange, and then one stripe, you can look at them when you get back there, has all the other five colors in it. And these colors were said to represent the colors of the aura that radiated from the Buddha after he became enlightened. You'll see, if you read uh, discourses from that time, you'll see that people saw the Buddha and said he was radiant, and so it's, it's kind of symbolically his, his aura reflected in certain colors. And so blue light radiated from his hair, yellow light from his skin, red from his flesh, white from his bones and teeth, orange from his palms, heels, and lips. So, the, but the colors of the flag assign meaning to each of these things. So blue represents metta, goodwill, and peace. 
between beings. Uh, on the, at the Buddha's birthday, the abbot talked about the Brahma-viharas, the, the mental states that we should develop that bring us closer to uh, the highest mental states, the highest spiritual states, goodwill, compassion, uh, gladness in the good fortune of others, and equanimity. And that's, that's what that blue stripe represents. Yellow signifies the middle path kind of. It's basically the, the, uh, the path that's neither sensual desire nor asceticism, as explained in the Four Noble Truths and, and the kind of the basic early teachings, including uh, realization of impermanence and emptiness and things like that. So that's the yellow. Red symbolizes the blessings that arise as the result of our practice. So things like realization, uh, virtue, good fortune, respectfulness, that's the red. Orange represents the essence of Buddhism, prana wisdom and diligence. So when we were doing the, chanting the Heart Sutra earlier, the Bodhisattva Avalokiteshvara, while engaged in deep Pranya paramita, perfection of pranya wisdom. He realized emptiness and was freed of fear. So that's, that's what the orange represents. And then the stripe that combines the five colors symbolizes kind of two things. One is the way all of the teachings and all, all of the aspects of the Dharma work together, but also the ways that all of these practices are combined into one Buddhism. So this flag also represents unity among Buddhists, and, and, and that's a very profound thing, I think. It's been a factor in helping Buddhism to spread, and it's represented the rights of people to practice Buddhism freely. For example, in, in 1963, the president of South Vietnam uh, called for the flag to be banned, and using a previously kind of ignored law that flags other than the Vietnamese national flag weren't permitted. And so when it, when it couldn't be flown on Vesak Day for the first time in a long time, that sparked protests that ended up with government forces killing unarmed civil, civilian protesters, which led to a series of actions, including uh, the government kind of repressed uh, Buddhism and Buddhist monks developed resistance and Pretty much everybody here has heard of the Vietnamese master, Venerable Thich Nhat Hanh. As a result of this uh, unrest, he became actively engaged in spreading awareness of these conditions throughout the West. Um, and in 1966, met Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who nominated him for a Nobel Prize, and they influenced one another to work to promote freedom and equity for people everywhere. And so the flag exists because of the wish that Buddhists everywhere unite in their practice of the teachings. But at least in part, you could say that we're here today probably at least in part because the flag exists. So it's kind of an interesting, interesting thing the way that has affected our culture. So I hope that this long rambling story about these flags will inspire your practice Remember that they represent kindness and compassion, blue. The Four Noble Truths, yellow. The blessings that arise from our practice, red. The purity of Buddha nature, white. And Pranya wisdom, orange. 
and the coming together of the practices embodied in the Dharma. And so I hope that when you see these flags, that you'll realize how profound this beloved spiritual community is, not just this particular Sangha, but the spiritual community that transcends space and time and connects us to all Buddhas everywhere, regardless of time or space, whenever we practice together as a community. So thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Adventures of Sariputta and Moggallana. I hope you enjoyed today's history lesson, but more important, I hope you consider ways that tradition and veneration might enhance your own Dharma superpowers. I hope you'll join me next week when I'll talk about Superman and how you can develop some of his special abilities. If you want to read the comic that inspired that talk, Superman and the Jumper, I posted it on my website, which you will find at stone-sun.org. Now go save the world. Mm -hmm.